You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 123 of the Common Sense Podcast. One, two, three. Today we are discussing spiders. Spiders? Spiders. Just in time for the month of October. Yes. A group of animals traditionally, if sometimes unfairly, associated with spookiness. Yes. Spiders often get a reputation for being spooky, and it's one of those where I always want to defend them because I love spiders, but also, like, they are little... Like miniature monsters for the insect world. Yeah, they are, and they are <laughs> creepy. I get it. Yeah, I yeah. get it. No, I get there's it. There's too many eyes. There's too many legs. You get stuck in their webs, and the, it's that's gross. Right. Yeah. They are. No. They are kind of the movie villain. Yeah. For most other small creatures, but then also adorable and super important and awesome, and just so cool. Like so. Yeah. No. It's. It's a very, a dichotomy a (laughs) spider is. But they're not monsters to us. No. So, you know, back off, everybody. Leave them alone. (laughs) Just let them be. We will be discussing spiders this episode, going through what spiders are, what it means, like what makes a spider, and how they got to be that way. We'll also be taking a zoom in on their webs and how those have changed over time. A very unique spider trait. Yeah, it's actually one of the defining spider traits. Which is very cool. Right? One of your defining characteristics is that you make stuff. (laughs) You have web shooters. (laughs) But as always, we're discussing this because it's been requested. It sure has. People want to hear about spiders. Yeah, we got a bunch of requesters. This episode was requested by Boyan, Andrew, Francis, David, Shannon, Logan, Arturo, Jackie, Johan... Varun and Carlton, my dad. Oh, well, thanks everyone and also Will's dad. (laughs) My dad is one of those who is interested about spiders, but not a fan of them. Right. (laughs) He appreciates and would like them to stay over there. Well, this is a great way to learn about them uh, where they can't get you, where they're nowhere near you that you know of. (laughs) But they are. Yeah, yeah, they are. (laughs) There there are probably, there could very well be a few in the room for this recording. If we see them, we'll ask them to weigh in. As I say, I hope so. Yeah. Now, before we get into the episode, as usual, we have some announcements. Our first announcement being, we have a Patreon. Yeah, we do. And on our Patreon, you can get some extra little tidbits and goodies that we put up there, and the people there supporting us through Patreon completely fund the podcast. Yes. And so... Our our hosting, our equipment, our cool extra stuff we get to do, all thanks to Patreon support. Top to bottom. And... When you sign up and support us at a certain level, we like to shout your name out in gratitude here on the podcast. So this episode, we would like to welcome and thank Max, Jade, Jason, Lord, Brad, Jacob, and Roland. Welcome, everybody. There's a big list this time. Yeah, it is. We're getting lots of support. The goodies you can get on Patreon include extra bonus content, a bonus access to us, questions to ask us to answer on the episode, which we will be doing at the end of this episode. Yep. And like we said, that money you're donating to us goes to support the podcast, goes to support this educational endeavor that we're doing. Hey, you can also check our episode description for a link to PayPal where you can make one-time donations if that's more your thing. Yeah. And speaking of getting access to us and getting in contact with us, we now have an official podcast mailbox. A physical mailbox. Yep. For physical mail. You'll find that address in the blog posts. Yes, in the About Us Contact Us section of our blog on Mm. WordPress. 
Link in the description of the episode. And since we got our mailbox, we've gotten our first bit of fan mail in our official mailbox. Yeah. Elizabeth sent us a wonderful little letter and Lego gift card. Yeah. So thank you so much, Elizabeth. We loved the card. We loved reading. Both uh, of them. What you have, what you had to say. <laughs> and yes, uh, we we know what we're spending that gift card on. So stay tuned. There will be photos. <laughs> <laughs> So that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, it warms our hearts to get presents. Oh, it's amazing. It and, really, and really is cool. Letters from people, whether you're doing it on email, on social media, uh, or if you want now, you can do it in a physical letter or whatever it is you want to send us. Yeah. And speaking of extra stuff, not Patreon extra stuff, but extra episodes, we are entering October now. Yeah. So it is spooky season. Spookulative evolution, our annual October series. We have recorded the episodes. They will be being posted every Saturday after the first one. Yep. The last four Saturdays <laughs> in October. Each episode is dedicated to us speculatively evolving a monster. This year's theme is plant monsters. Yeah. Unusual for us. Yes, which is why we brought in an expert. <laughs> so this spooky, we are joined by Allie. Our, our friend, Dr. Allie Baumgartner, the whom you've heard before. Yeah, the neighborhood paleobotanist. <laughs> From several states away. <laughs> so tune in for that and let us know your thoughts about the monsters we create. Yeah, that begins releasing on October 9th and continues to the end of the month. And with that, we can wrap up our announcements and go into our first official section, which is the news. Every episode, we like to gather up some recent paleontology, evolution, biology news, earth science news, keeps us all up to date together, and we like to share it with you here on the podcast. David, what's the news for today? Well, keeping with the theme of the episode and the time of the year, groups of animals that are often associated, typically unfairly, with spookiness and scariness, I've got news about snakes. Hey. Specifically... How the evolution of snakes has been affected by pulses of extinction and diversification. Okay. Or the part that the headlines are focusing on, how the end Cretaceous mass extinction affected snake evolution. Yeah, the only one that anyone ever That's the <laughs> cares big one. to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> this is research by Catherine Klein et al. in the journal Nature Communications, and we will link to an article in the blog post. This article is on Science Alert, by, written by Jacinta Bowler. The Cretaceous period ended badly. <laughs> we discussed this back in episode five. The mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous ended the age of dinosaurs, wiped out something like 75% of species. Of stuff. Of stuff. And just reshaped global ecosystems. There has been lots of study about how different groups of life were affected by this, both in terms of the extinction at the event and how they rebounded afterwards. The evolutionary history of a lot of different animal groups shows rapid diversification after the extinction event. Which is, yeah, that, that, that very common after mass extinctions. Yeah, it wipes the slate clean, in, in a sense, and now there's plenty of space for <laughs> animals to evolve and diversify. It's a niche free-for-all. Yes. These kinds of diversifications have been noted in mammals, frogs, birds, fishes, and others... But there has long been uncertainty about what happened to squamates at this boundary. Squamates being lizards and snakes. A lot of early studies found evidence that squamates made it through the extinction boundary relatively okay, 
but some recent studies especially have found evidence that there ex- there may have been more dramatic losses among lizards and snakes than we previously thought. Snakes in particular are really hard to study in this regard because their early fossil record is rather poor and a lot of what's found of them is fragmentary, so we don't have a lot of information. Yeah. This study uses genetic information across modern snakes to put together a new modeled evolutionary history of snakes, calibrated with fossil information and information about evolutionary relationships. This paper is touting that it is uh, using this information. You know, this isn't the first time this kind of evolutionary history has been reconstructed, but this paper is coming at it with new modeling approaches which I won't go into detail here, partially for time, and also because I don't actually understand how these things work. Yep. But suffice to say, they have come up with a new hypothesis for the snake evolutionary timescale. Previous research has sometimes suggested that modern groups of snakes, a lot of them started showing up in the Cretaceous period. But this new study finds evidence that most modern snakes are descended from a diversification event that happened at or after the extinction boundary. Uh, Right right at that boundary. That only after the extinction could modern groups of snakes actually start to diversify and come into their own. Their model, in fact, suggests that as few as six modern lineages made it through that boundary. Wow. That this, this modern diversity started from a small number of survivors... That made it through there, which is something we have seen before, for example, with birds. Yeah, I was about to say that came up with birds yes, <laughs> pretty significantly. Birds mostly disappeared and only a small number made it across the boundary and then gave rise to all the birds we have today. Now, they do mention in the paper not all of their model results find quite so low a number, but there is the suggestion that there may have been a bottleneck mm-hmm. at that time. This paper also looks at how... Uh, other changes occurred in snake evolution. For example, they note that the anatomy of snake vertebrae, backbones, which is most of our fossil record. It's most of the snake. It's most of the snake. <laughs> the anatomy diversified after the extinction. Okay. Which seems to suggest snakes were moving into new lifestyles and body shapes that they haven't had before. Notably, for example, it isn't until sometime after the extinction that we see, for example, the first known tree snakes. We see increasing specialization in marine snakes in the Paleogene, and we also see increases in body size across snakes during this time, and they move to new places. Based on what evidence we have uh, currently, it looks like snakes didn't make it into Asia until after the extinction event. Really? So it looks like they were able to expand into both new physical spaces and new ecological spaces after the extinction event. I'm kind of floored by how utterly bizarre the idea of a snakeless Asia is. Weird. Apparently we don't have evidence of Asian snakes before the Cenozoic. I don't like that. (laughs) This is a weird alien world. (laughs) Now, this isn't entirely unexpected. Extinction has a habit of reducing competition and allowing things to move into new roles. Similar things have been proposed, like I said, for fish and birds. 
Uh, snakes especially. These days it makes sense to look at snakes and think that they would thrive in ecosystems that are abundant in small animals that survived after the extinction. It's not really surprising to hear that marine snakes did really well after the extinction. That took out the mosasaurs and plesiosaurs and a lot of the fishes that otherwise would have been competition. Yeah, it cleared out all the sea monsters. Yes, exactly. This diversification, as the article, uh, the uh, Science Alert article puts it, laid the groundwork for boas, pythons, vipers, cobras, and all sorts of different modern snakes. And one of the authors is quoted as referring to the extinction event as a form of creative destruction, which is a very <laughs> cool phrase. <laughs> oh, man, I set that phrase aside for whenever I become a supervillain. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. Very cool. Well, I... I appreciate studies like this so much because it, it is so often that if a group that was around before the in Cretaceous, it, it, it gets touted that they just ignored that, you know, crocs were around with the dinosaurs. They just completely ignored the extinction that wiped those losers out. Right. And they're still here today. Snakes were around before and they are still around. They're everywhere today. You know, birds, why did birds do so well when dinosaurs all disappear? Okay, but they didn't ignore it. Right. It was a global ecological collapse. Like the fact that they're commonplace in, you know, mover, big movers and shakers in the environment today doesn't mean that they were always like that the entire, it hasn't been uniform. Right. And indeed some of the groups did better or at the very least came into what we know them as today only after the event. Yeah. And so I, I, I appreciate this perspective on, yeah, snakes were around before the dinosaurs died out. Then they got hit real hard. Mm -hmm. But then the doors opened up for them and they enough stuck around to bounce way back and past where they were. Right. And so it, I, I appreciate that, that <laughs> emphasizing the complexity of the life history. Yeah. Now, we should stress that we're always learning more about snakes and every new discovery of a Cretaceous snake significantly increases our understanding <laughs> because we don't have a lot of info. So it wouldn't surprise me if this story continues to develop over time in future studies significantly. Oh yeah. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention, and this was in the paper, and I don't think this was mentioned in the articles that I read about it, but in the paper, they also note they found evidence in that genetic history of a major, another major extinction and rediversification in the Oligocene. Oh. So this would have been, you know, the 30-ish million year range, possibly related to cooling climates and then warmer times and the spread of grasslands afterwards. Oh. That it's not just the and Cretaceous that did this stuff. There have been other events like that. Which makes perfect sense. Sure does. Very neat. Complex history that we're still working on understanding. Uh, we're still working on understanding them today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's a, a tricky group. Well, speaking of oddly shaped animals, mm -hmm. penguins. That, those are oddly shaped. Yeah, very different shape, but still odd. Yes. <laughs> Episode 108. Kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. This is about a new species of giant New Zealand penguin. Ooh. We talked a lot about early penguins in episode 108 and also about New Zealand in episode 86. Yeah. So these keep coming up. Yep. <laughs> this is research by Simone Giovanardi et al. in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. And the article we'll be linking to in the blog post is by Mindy Weisberger in Live Science. 
Penguins, in comparison to snakes, actually have a very good fossil record. They sure do. <laughs> a much more complete one. They have those big, dense bones. Yes. <laughs> and this is a new member. Kairuku Weweroa is a new species of giant penguin that has been dated to around 34 to 27 million years old and is one of the most complete giant penguin specimens to date. Oh, cool. It's a very, very good specimen. It was described, I think a lot of the news article titles called it this, uh, of a long-legged giant penguin. Right. That this is a long-legged specimen. Which uh, conjures to mind the idea of a penguin stork. Yes. Just wading <laughs> through the water, which I assume is not what it is. No, no. <laughs> Compared to other penguins. Right. This is this has got some long runway legs, but compared to other birds, it's still a penguin. Uh, the article pointed out that this is yet another giant penguin from the Oligocene of New Zealand. Oh yeah, like this this place was lousy with them. They got lots during this time. Yep, and before yeah, you know, we talked in the in the penguins episode that they there were giant penguins for many millions of years. Yeah, that was just a trend. That's how penguins were. And arguably, we still have a giant penguin. That's true. Like, the emperor penguin is four feet tall. Like, that's a big penguin. This one was not crazy bigger than that, but it was like four and a half. Mm -hmm. So, a little bit less than one and a half meters. And had proportionally unusually long legs and a very long beak. Okay. Also not unusual among ancient penguins. No. The artist reconstruction made it less spear-like and more just elongated. Then I saw, then I've seen other art for some of the giant, like, long build mm -hmm. penguins. The specimen was complete enough that they were able to scan it and get a 3D reconstruction. So they now have a nice 3D model. And comparing it to the other members of its own genus, it would be one of the largest members of this genus. Uh, as the article put it, towered over its other members. Cool. And they think that its longer legs may have played a big role in swimming. Uh, being able to either swim faster or dive deeper or both, maybe. Okay. That it may have been a feature of their locomotion. Interesting. That makes sense. You have longer kickers for better swimming. I like hearing that there was... It's it's very easy to think, yes, there used to be giant penguins. And then, as I said, they were around for a long time. It's easy to forget, for me at least, that there was also diversity among the giant penguins. Yeah. That they weren't... There wasn't just the same giant penguin template. Some of them swam differently and some of them... There wasn't just one ecological niche there wasn't just one way to live for a giant penguin there were many molds of giant penguin well and so often we think of just uh, like you know there are multiple species of penguin today uh but i often see it treated as just like size categories but they're just right tiny penguin medium penguin big penguin you know uh, a mama bear papa bear baby bear <laughs> um i don't see many discussions of like significant anatomical difference uh, which could very well be that a lot of our penguins today are functioning in a very uniform way. Right. So it's interesting to find that, yeah, there are fossil penguins that would have behaved differently, like fundamentally because of how they're shaped. Yeah. As we often uh, say on this podcast, the things we have today are not always good representatives of the extinct relatives. They were doing different things back then. Yeah. Before the snakes took over. <laughs> Well, my next bit of news, still in keeping with the main theme of the episode of groups of animals that are often associated with being scary and spooky, <laughs> uh, my next bit of news is about humans. <laughs> well played. 
I left out the unfairly part <laughs> that time. This is research. If you uh, follow the news, there's a good chance you've seen this. This headline's been going around of surprisingly ancient human footprints in here in North America. Oh, right. Big deal stuff. This is research by Matthew Bennett et al. in the journal Science. We will link to an article on Nature News by Ewan Calloway. The question of when humans, Homo sapiens, our species, made it into North America has been asked and discussed for a very long time, and there have, for a very long time, been, let's say, disagreements. (laughs) For a long time, uh, it was thought that the Clovis people, the people who left behind the Clovis points, a certain type of tool we found, were the first humans in North America, dating to around 11 to 13,000 years old. In recent times, there has been more and more evidence that it looks like humans were around before that, with evidence going back to 15,000, years. And every now and then, there does come up evidence of humans being in the Americas well before even that. But when claims come up of humans in the Americas long before that, they tend to be controversial. They tend to be big deals. They tend to make the headlines. And then there tends to be lots of arguing about them. Partially because it's the suggestion of an idea that goes against the conventional wisdom of what we understand about human evolution, but also because a lot of the time those sites, uh, other researchers find reasons to be uncertain about the identification of the artifacts in question or the dating of the site sometimes is less certain than people like it to be. So there is this constant discussion of, all right, When exactly did humans show up in North America? Were they really here much earlier than our good evidence suggests? And if so, what does that tell us about how they moved here and how they got here? Well, this new research identifies footprints, human footprints, from Lake Otero in White Sands National Park, New Mexico. This is a site with lots of animal footprints. Uh, I know there was a paper that came out not long ago. We may have talked about it on the podcast about ground sloth footprints. And I think I saw somewhere that there are mammoth footprints there, like Ice Age animal footprints. Here, human footprints, 60 of them. Wow. Which, yeah, that's a heck of a footprint assemblage on seven different sediment layers, identified mostly as children and teen footprints. Oh, a party. This was, yeah, this this was spring break. (laughs) These kids were out when they should have been doing, I don't know, farming or whatever. (laughs) Party at Doug's Cave. I guess they weren't farming here because (laughs) these footprints were dated to between 23 and 21,000 years old. That's old. Which is old compared to our generally agreed upon evidence. <laughs> they snuck over to North America. To... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. They're they getting away from the Neanderthals on the other side. These were dated using radiocarbon dates from grass seeds in the sediment, which is pretty cool. And the authors, it sounds like, went to lots and lots of lengths to try to root out, so to speak, any potential sources of error in their dating like as they said in one of the articles i read we knew people were gonna have lots of questions about this so we went we worked as thorough as we could be to make sure these dates were good to pull up everything that one guy said (laughs) and we're gonna do it we're gonna test it here it's like making a comment on the internet you load it up with all the stuff you know the other commenters are gonna uh, argue with you about yep now this has been making headlines lots of people have been talking about it uh, 
the typical questions have come up. Uh, questions about the identification of the footprints. I did see some stuff going around where people were like, how authentic are these footprints? But generally, it seems like there's lots of agreement that, yeah, these do appear to be human footprints. Although I did see one comment of, from someone who wasn't so sure they were children, uh, quoted in one of the articles. But ch- human footprints. There's tiny dancers. Tiny, yeah. <laughs> Just small people, uh, which they could be. There's also some have expressed the hope that there will be other info, that if we've got lots of humans here, they should hopefully have been living somewhere nearby. So maybe there's artifacts to be found. The dating has been a source of a lot of discussion with uh, other researchers quoted as saying the dates might very well be good, but it would be nice to get more dates because we care a lot more about dating accuracy when it's humans than when it's, you know, ground slots and stuff. Yeah. Now there's a drive. Uh, although I did like that, and I don't remember, I think this is in the article that I'm, we'll be linking on the blog post, but I don't remember, that one author said, even if the date turns out to be off by like a thousand years, it's still a really early find of humans oh yeah like (laughs) that's not enough to make it not notable right (laughs) this find is significant for a number of reasons one if the dating is accurate that's very old that is more than twenty thousand years old and it seems like a pretty good candidate for uh, getting general agreement from paleoanthropologists it adds to growing evidence that humans might have come to north america via a different route than we used to think For a long time, there's been the discussion that, you know, northern North America was covered in ice sheets during the last glacial maximum, that humans couldn't have come through until they started to melt and opened up passages that you could walk through on ground. But there has been suggestions over time that humans could have found their way here before those corridors opened if they followed a coastal route Mm -hmm. along the Pacific. Right across Alaska and down uh, across Western Canada. This seems this would be another point in favor that, yeah, they had made it here before those late Ice Age corridors. And a lot of people are excited because this might make us reevaluate some of those other older sites that have often been dismissed. This finding, and I've seen researchers who are eager to stress this point, Even if this is confirmed, that doesn't automatically mean any other older site is definitely uh, for real. Yeah, just because it might be older than those other ones doesn't mean those are definitely people. Right. But it would mean that we can't just say, no, that can't be true. Too old. Exactly. Another interesting thing that I've seen brought up in a number of articles is the perspective of indigenous North Americans who cite the cultural histories of their people, the sort of cultural stories and language of their people, as itself being evidence that humans have been here for many thousands of years. Oh, yeah. Like a couple of the articles that I saw that quoted indigenous people or representatives of, or you know, talking about the perspective of indigenous folks mention, for example, you know, stories about the ice coming and going away. Yep. That could potentially be a reference to waxing and waning of the ice sheets or the fact that apparently one of them cited the fact that some indigenous languages have a word for camel. (laughs) And it's like, all right, well, why would you need that (laughs) if you weren't here? 
when camels were here. That's <laughs> awesome. So there is also, it sounds like a bit of vindication for certain uh, cultures to go, yeah, we have also been saying this, but from sort of a social, cultural perspective. Yep. That's very interesting. And it's like we said with the snakes, I'm sure this will pop back. Discussion of this will pop back up. Yep. And re-examinations and studies from different points of view. But like, yeah, the question of when us peoples got here is is notable, not just for us, but also it syncs up with a bunch of things that happened to other animals. Yeah. Uh, so knowing the dates <laughs> might be really, really helpful for refining some of those arguments. Yeah. We talked uh, episode 25 about the late Pleistocene megafaunal extinction. And a lot of the time, the question of what effect did humans have on the extinction of megafauna comes down to how did the dates line up? Yeah. Did the climate start changing or did people arrive? Which one before the other? Which right. one started to sync up with the extinction more? Yeah. So knowing if if it turns out we were there way earlier than we thought we were, th that might so. All right. Well, we we had been living with them for a long time. Right. Exactly. Maybe it maybe it wasn't our maybe it wasn't our fault this time. <laughs> this, this time. <laughs> this time. Maybe on the large land masses we didn't do it. Take one of those little weights <laughs> off that side of the scale. <laughs> Also, I like that every time we have conversations about these kind of topics, it reveals our geographic bias. Oh, yeah. Because we keep saying here. Here. <laughs> when, yeah, when did humans make it yeah. here? When did, when did humans get home? <laughs> we when, all know what we're talking when about, When could right? they have visited my right? house? <laughs> yes, we are based in North America. North America. North America. <laughs> oh, we are North American ourselves. <laughs> well, neat. Well, continuing to speak about our, our spooky creatures uh, but specifically speaking of this episode uh spiders no oh, news about spiders i have news about spiders how topical to ease us into the topic transition <laughs> this is about a few different spiders preserved in amber that show signs of parenthood this is research by jiang bo guo et al in the proceedings of the royal society b and the article is by frida creer in science news now Spiders, and this is part of the reason I chose this news, is so I could sneak some of our spiders' notes into this part of the episode. Ah, so this is some foreshadowing, some information ahead of time. Yep. Yeah, so if you're one of those people that skips the news, you're out of luck this time. Mm, you're not going to know how common parenthood is in spiders, <laughs> uh, particularly maternal care. Okay. Uh, you know, you mentioned that, and I am not aware of how common maternal care is in spiders. Yeah, it is actually pretty... And, and, you know, it's not the common necessarily, but it is not unusual for female spiders to care for the egg sac that they make, the egg case, and guard it. But also many will carry it with them from burrow to burrow or as they move. And then there are even examples of the young staying with the mother. That Those famous examples people like to post on the internet of a female spider just covered in spiderlings. Right. And being like, oh, but also, oh, it's right. a mom. It's it's a family. It's a giant baby Bjorn. <laughs> it's in fact so common that it's thought to probably have evolved multiple individual times among spiders. Cool. There are even some extreme examples of female spiders that nurse their young, uh, feed them their, their early meals. Cool. And it has been suspected that based on uh, uh, evolutionary clocks that it probably evolved sometime in the Cretaceous. Okay. But we don't have a lot of solid evidence. 
because I, I bet we don't have a lot of Cretaceous spiders. And we actually have more than you think. Oh, uh, I'm going to learn so much right? this episode. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but that is a very particular behavior we need to trap. Right. We, d- we don't have a lot of evidence of parenting, period. Exactly. Any animals <laughs> in the fossil record. The earliest fossils we have for uh, spider egg cases are from Burmese amber, mid-Cretaceous. Around 100 million years old. But even those are questionable as to if they that is what they actually are. There are a number of fossils from the Cenozoic, so after the Cretaceous, even one including a female carrying the, the egg case in her mouth parts. Cool. Yep. But the early evolution has not been really well understood. This research is looking at four different amber specimens, each with spiders preserved with evidence of egg sac and spiderlings throughout them, making it by far the oldest definite evidence of a female carrying their young. These spiders belong to the now extinct family Leganomegapidae, which are distinguished by large reflective eyes. (laughs) Which means... (laughs) Large reflective eyes is a characteristic of the fossils. Yeah. That's cool. And so it means they probably were active hunters, uh, nocturnal, most likely, which we'll get into in the episode. This suggests that parental care in females for this group dates back to the Cretaceous and likely earlier. The other three chunks of amber preserve dozens of what seem to be roughly weak-ish old spiderlings, young spiders, which could suggest that the spiders hung around with their mothers after hatching which is not an uncommon behavior among spiders. So this could both be evidence for carrying of the eggs and carrying of the young in this group. Very cool, very cool finds and very cool insights into this group. Also, I love that spiderlings is the (laughs) term we use for baby spiders. I know that people who keep spiders call them slings. (laughs) That's what I've seen. Like uh, our friend Shaylee has keeps spiders and I've seen her make posts that refer to them as slings. That's a thing that, like, spider people call them. I'd call them flips. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Mom spiders. Very cool. Before we move on from this news, this is an important, interesting piece of news relevant to the episode. So it's good that we got to mention it. But we should make just a brief aside that... As we've discussed previously on the podcast, Burmese amber is surrounded in controversy because of the circumstances surrounding how Burmese amber is collected. Yeah, it's entered a very similar territory to blood diamonds. Yes. We're not going to go into all that here. We've talked about it in previous episodes. And if you're curious, look online uh, for information about why amber has become controversial. But I, I wanted to make sure we mention it because it's an important topic while we're bringing up Burmese amber. And and this news article does have a section at the end discussing that. Excellent. About how good. there has been a proposed to put a moratorium on research of new findings. Yeah. So check out the news article in the blog post. And with that, we can wrap up the news. And since we were just talking about spiders, uh, let's talk about what those are. Yeah. Let's have a whole discussion about them. After the break. Oh, my main discussion senses are tingling. (laughs) Spiders are found within a group 
known as chalicerata, which is sister to the mandibulata, which includes your millipedes, crustaceans, and insects. Right. This is a different major group of arthropods, within which we have two major groups, the euchalicerata, which includes arachnids, eurypterids, sea scorpions, cool. and horseshoe crabs. Neat. This is why when people talk about horseshoe crabs and them not being crabs but being more closely related to spiders, this is what they're talking about. Right. They are not spiders. Technically closer to spiders than cra- than to crabs. Yes. But yeah, they're still pretty far off from spiders. Yes. This is actually sister group to the sea spiders, which is also in Chilicerata, which are also not spiders. Also not spiders. Yeah, <laughs> we're bad at naming invertebrates. <laughs> How many legs does it have? Yeah, right. Is it spidery? Is it a spidery number of legs? <laughs> Arachnida, which are now getting more to recognizable names. Yep, arachnids. I know that word. Arachnids include way more than spiders. Yes. Uh, very commonly, you'll see like hey, spiders and scorpions, but there are a ton of arachnids. There are about 70,000 described species with an estimated million more to, to be discovered. Because <laughs> like, invertebrates. Because invertebrates and arachnids. And arthropods. Almost all modern telicerids are arachnids. <laughs> okay. Like, makes sense. This is basically Chilicerata within horseshoe crabs tacked on and fossil groups. Right. But modern days, it's arachnids. This includes your scorpions, your both whip and the normal variety. Whip scorpions have that little, not flagellum, but flagellate hair like whip tail. Your false scorpions, your harvestmen, and your daddy long legs, mm-hmm. uh, or granddaddy long legs, depending on which part of the country you know, right. you're referring to the long, skinny leg that. Pop off and twitch legs. Yeah. Ticks and mites. Mm-hmm. And then finally, spiders. Spiders for real. Spiders are in the group. Araniae, about 80% of arachnids are made up of spiders and mites. Wow. With ticks and mites being the bigger of the two. Huh. That's the largest group. That makes sense. That's a we, yeah, We've parasites. talked about, yeah, <laughs> yep, exactly. We've talked about what being parasitic does for you. Episode 102. I didn't get numbers on the ticks and mites, but when, when, uh, when I was just going through the articles, one of them said by far more diverse. <laughs> so, but then second place is spiders. So let's look at second place. <laughs> ticks and mites episode someday. Aranier, spiders are crazy diverse. There are... As of this year, 129 families described, mm-hmm. 4,229 genera described, uh-huh. and 49,671 species. Man. With an estimated 100,000, 100, 170,000 probably alive on the world today. Wow. They are split into two main suborders. The mesotheles, which are the more primitive, the more basal spiders which are found in Southeast Asia, they only make up two genera and 85 species. Like they are... This is the outgroup. These are the outgroup. They're not very common and they are distinctly different. We'll get into that. And then the opistotheles, everything else. Right. (laughs) All the other spiders. When you're thinking of a spider, you're thinking of opistotheles. This is also split into two main groups. The megalomorphae, which are your big spiders... The baboon spiders, your tarantulas, uh, which is another name for tarantulas in some cases. Baboon spiders. Huh. Which is a great name. Cool. These also are going to be a lot of your, like, funnel web spiders. Your big, beefy, ground-dwelling spiders. Fifteen families worldwide. Around 2,500 species. Okay. So, doing very well. Sure. And then the raniomorphae, the so-called true spiders, 
which are the rest of spiders. Right. The other <laughs> 36,000. Yep. <laughs> you'll typically see it split between the mesotheles, the megalomorphs, and the araniomorphs. The, the two M's tend to be more similar in appearance and behavior. Okay. Our mesotheles and our tarantula group. Large, more heavily built, tend to be ground-dwelling, living in burrows. They still use silk. We're going to get into silk. We'll talk a lot about silk this episode, but they they do use silk, but they don't tend to be web builders. Right. So these tend to be using silk for other means, you know, in the burrows with egg sacs and stuff like that. They lack the specialized web that makes the araniomorphs so good at making webs, which is the cement silk that allows them just to glue it to a surface. Mm. And just, like, Spider-Man it to something. I was going to say, like Spider-Man, this sticks somewhere. And it literally is a cement that dries and just will glue it to anything. And now you can draw that line wherever you want. They don't have that. They have a more simplistic kind of silk. So they usually have to connect it down across a broader area. So that's why you don't get those complex structures because they can't be precise. Gotcha. So it's more of sheets of webs than a stringy net. Right. Well, this makes me think of, I want to say that like in Lord of the Rings, when they're in Shelob's area, mm-hmm. is that they're just net, ev- like webbing yeah. everywhere, just all over the place. That, kind of more like that. Okay. And now as cool as these two groups are, they make up about 7% of the diversity of the Uraniomorphs. Yes. Cool, but small. Oh, they are a drop in the spider bucket, the <laughs> bucket full of spiders. <laughs> Uraniomorphs are your... Spiders. These are your web-building spiders, uh, but also your wolf spiders, your jumping spiders. Basically, anything that's not a tarantula or one of those weird spiders, right. <laughs> you're thinking of an araniomorph. These are famous for the silk threads. Uh, very famous for using drag lines where they leave thread behind them as they walk. Uh, just a safety line that they drag behind them. Right. So if you fall off your branch, mm-hmm. you're still attached to it. And it's not adhered to the ground all along the way, but every now and then they'll just glue. Mm-hmm. glue. It's like climbing a mountain and you just put a pin in yep. every so many feet. This is one of the defining features of this group is their use of web this way. And as to be expected with such a diverse group, these spiders are everywhere. They're on every continent except Antarctica. They are near you right now. Yep. Uh, there was uh, one study in Great Britain that looked at a hectare of of lawn, of grassy meadow, and found five million spiders. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> I don't like know intuitively off the top of my head how big a hectare is, but I know that it's too small for five million spiders. <laughs> to, to be using the word a million. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And also with that diversity, we get a ton of different shapes to them. Size-wise, they range from itty-bitty, like 0.5 millimeters oh, yeah. in length. Real, real small. You the, can fit millions of them in a hectare. Yes, yep. <laughs> the smallest one I found was Patu Digua, which was said to have a body length of 0.37 millimeters. Ooh. Itty-bitty. Wow. Whilst the largest ones get up to multiple centimeters in body length. Uh, the biggest being the Goliath bird-eating spider, which is a leg length, a leg span of about 30 centimeters or 12 inches. A foot. Uh, and body length is 30 cent- 13 centimeters or 5 inches, which makes it the biggest spider by body length. Right. But typically the leg span is given to the gr- giant huntsman of Australia, which has r- roughly equal size, you know, another foot long 
a foot wide spider, but typically is rated as being on average bigger, I think. Gotcha. It's funny when you said big, I was about to make a joke that these are big enough to eat vertebrates. And yep. then you named the first one. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Bird eating spiders. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the abundance and widespreadedness of spiders. Should we take a quick moment here to just remind any of our listeners who might not intuitively be aware that you do not actually, in fact, swallow spiders while you're sleeping? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. This is a common <laughs> thing. Like, I don't know where this got started. I didn't do any research ahead of time. I just thought of this. Yep. And this would be a good thing to mention. That somehow people started saying that you, the average person swallows X number of spiders in their sleep. No, you don't. No. Well, no, spiders are small, but they're not stupid. Well, that's the thing is like <laughs> they, they avoid mouths. Right. Quite often. That's, that's one of the things they're good at to yeah. stay alive because <laughs> they are tiny and lots of things eat them. Right. I'm sure people have swallowed spiders by accident. Yeah. I'm sure it's happened. Yeah, I've swallowed bugs by accident. Uh-huh. That's hap- That's a thing that happens. But no, they're not just going around attracted to the sound of snoring and going spelunking <laughs> and then d- discovering that they can't get back out like a cat with its head in a box. Like, yeah, right. No, that's not true. So they're- for those of you who were worried, no, don't worry, you're not swallowing spiders. They're just trying to drax it into <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, you're weak on the outside. I'll bite them from the inside. <laughs> So the spider body plan is pretty standard for chelicerates. It is two-segmented body plan, two-sectioned right. body plan. Head, the rest. Yes. The cephalothorax is the front part with the legs and the head. Cephalothorax being the combination of the head and the thorax. Right. If you think about the insect body plan, which we discussed in episode 99, they have a head, a thorax, and an abdomen. Yes. Here... Head and thorax are the cephalothorax. They do not move separately. They are one part. But then we still do have the abdomen, which in most chelicerates and most arachnids are still kind of fused. They're still very contiguous to one another. With spiders, they have a hip, a waist, where those are distinct and mobile from one another. Right. The head section and the abdomen section are separated. Yes. There's a little pinch. Yep. This is what makes spiders look like they have those big butts. This is a distinguishing feature of spiders versus other arachnids. Both of these sections are made out of fused segments. Uh, the cephalothorax fused segments, each segment, with each segment which carries a pair of legs. Yep. Which is why if you draw your spider with legs on the back part, it looks wrong. Yep. Yep. The abdomen is also made out of segments, 12 fused segments, which in most groups you cannot see. Okay. Uh, there's no sign of the segmentation. It's just a big bulb. Yep. It's fully fused, though some colorations follow the ancient segmentation. Cool. Uh, so you might have stripes or patterning that follows where those segments used to be. That's pretty neat. In the mesotheles, they are still segmented. Okay. That's one of the big things that s- separates them off. Their abdomen is notable. It is visibly segmented on the top. Which is why they are noted as one of the more primitive groups. Right. They've retained that segmentation. Exactly. These sections are also known sometimes as the prosoma for the cephalothorax and the epistosoma for the abdomen. The front body and the back body. Exactly. As for their limbs, you have three kinds. You have the legs, which there are four pairs of, which equals out to eight. Eight legs. Eight legs. These typically are composed of seven sections. And often have two terminal claws at the end. 
which I used to think were just a feature for tarantulas. That's just a spider thing. Oh, cool. Yeah, they just have claws. In fact, web builders tend to have additional claws. Oh. And so, yeah, spiders are clawed. Yeah, for climbing. For climbing. Climbing around. That's a Spider-Man should really have claws. Right? 2099 has claws. They, they got it right. In front of those are the pedipalps, which on female spiders just look like another pair of legs. So females kind of have ten legs. They're just mm. little. They're itty-bitty legs. On males, they are specialized with larger knob-like endings for sperm transfer. Okay. Yep. They carry a sperm packet to the female with their pedipalps. And then finally, we have the chelicera, which are the mouth parts, the mouth limbs, uh, which carry the fangs. Yeah. So these... Mobile fangs. Absolutely. They are two little limbs with a fang at the tip that has a section for the fang to fold back onto it, usually. Now, most spiders have libidognath fangs, which means they face toward one another in a pincer bite. So they... they, Like ant mandibles. Exactly. They come together like a pair of pliers Mm -hmm. to bite in toward one another. Tarantulas and and their cousins tend to have orthognath fangs, which are pointed downward for stabbing. Okay. So those are more like a snake fang. Mm hmm. Now, basically, all of these fangs are venomous. Spiders are venomous. On the whole, minus one group, the Uluboridae, which seem to have secondarily lost venom. Cool. They have no venom glands. But though all spiders are venomous, basically all of them are harmless to animals like us humans. Right. Because they're hunting very tiny things. Yes. And let's get into what they're hunting. They eat a variety of things, insects mostly, and other arthropods. Mm -hmm. But there are ones that hunt fish. There are ones that will hunt small vertebrates. Yeah, frogs, Mm -hmm. lizards, birds. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, spiders are one of those weird groups like snakes, like sharks, that are carnivores by default, universally as a general rule. Yes, once again, with one exception. Okay. Yeah, because I found that that phrase in almost every source I went through. They are Mm -hmm. unusual for being strictly carnivorous. Right. And then I found one article, a report from 2009, about Bagheera Kiplingi, which is a tropical, a neotropical jumping spider, which seems to predominantly feed on the specialized leaf tips of acacia trees, specifically ant acacias, which have a mutualistic relationship with ants that live in their spines and produce these little food buds for the ants to eat to pay them for protecting the acacia. This spider steals those and seems to mainly subsist on these food bodies. Cool. Yeah. Makes me wonder how many of the thousands of undescribed spiders are doing weird things. But yeah, like this is not the only plant with ants. Yeah. So there's got to be lots of other Uh, options. But otherwise, spiders are hunters. They are carnivorous. They are predators. They are (laughs) catching prey. Now, famously, we think about them using webs to capture. And we will talk about webs, but we we have a whole section for that. So right. if you're like, why aren't they talking about... They're, we're going to go into it toward the end of the episode. We'll get there. Stay tuned. There's a lot to say about webs. <laughs> but we think of spiders catching animals by sitting in a web and waiting for food to come to them. Which, yeah, a ton of spiders do. That is by far the most common spider behavior. But there are plenty of active hunters as well. Many spiders, like wolf spiders, crab spiders, jumping spiders, have foregone building a web. They still use webbing, uh, but they've gone away from building hunting webs and are now 
just legging it uh, with all eight of them <laughs> and going to get food. Uh, most of these are thought to have secondarily developed this from web-building ancestors. These typically have heavier legs, you know, more even powerful legs for chasing prey or wrestling prey. They also tend to have notable differences in the tips of their legs. Uh, they do have the claws, but they also tend to have a group, a fluff of hair behind the claw called scopulae, which aids them in traction. It acts like cleats oh, cool. on the surface and even can help them climb. These are composed of many hairs, seti, which then further branch like the head of a broom into thousands of little heads, little tips. And this increased surface area can allow them to climb smooth, sheer surfaces through surface adhesion yeah. with a thin layer of water on those surfaces. Without that layer, it won't work. But if there is just any moisture, they will stick to it because of how hairy their feet are. Cool. Right? So in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, it should have been fuzzy fingers instead of the little hook-haired fingers. Right. He <laughs> <laughs> should have just gotten little little velvety pads. Like a gecko. Now, wolf spiders and jumping spiders are the two big groups that you typically think of when you think of chase-em-down spiders. Both which have evolved similar traits. Really good vision mm. is common with these two groups. Because they are now not waiting to feel vibrations. They're having to find their prey and track it down. The jumping spider's having to aim at it from a distant surface. Yep, they got to do math. Yep. <laughs> uh, but you do have the ones that are ambush predators. Like crab spiders will sit in uh, the bells of flowers mm -hmm. and wait for pollinators to come in yeah. and then jump them. And then there are specialists. And my favorite example of spider specialists are arachnophages. Yeah. <laughs> Arenophages is the other term you'll see, which are spider-eating spiders. Yes. And there are lots of spiders that will eat other spiders if given the chance. These are specialist spider hunters. Yes, these are the king snakes of spiders. Yes, they specialize. They basically only eat other spiders. One of the main groups, often known as the assassin spiders, but I'm going to refer to them by their much better name, pelican spiders. Nice. The archaeidae which are very, very small, like a couple of millimeters to maybe a little less than 10 millimeters, itty bitty. But they are spider specialists and they're called pelican spiders because instead of having the squat cephalothorax like you typically think of a spider having with just a little World War II helmet head, right. uh, they have a tall cephalothorax that effectively is a neck that sometimes is more squat, sometimes is very tall, and then two very long chelicera that lay down along that neck, and it looks like a pelican when it's sitting back with its bill resting on its front. Ooh. And they use that neck and those long chelicera to spring their bite forward. They lean the neck forward, whip the fangs out. Right, like a, like a crane. Like a crane, and grab a spider, and this allows them to keep that spider's venomous fangs away from their body yeah. by keeping them at arm's length. Huh. and wait for their venom to take effect until they're dead. Cool. The other one, which is the, the equally cool, just not nearly as weird looking, is Portia, which is a jumping spider. This one is really unusual for the fact that it hunts other spiders in their webs. It invades their webs. It will come into a spider's web. It has adaptations to blend in. It looks like a bit of fuzz. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> it looks like detritus stuck in the web. And they will wait for, like, 
you know, wind movement to allow them to move in. And then they will trigger the web. They'll tap the web to mimic prey yep. and get the other spider to run over. And then they pounce. Wow. Now, sometimes they'll come in and feed on the spider's eggs or the trapped prey mm-hmm. in the web from the spider, that spider's kills. And they are famous for having very versatile hunting methods. Like, they don't have one approach. They seem to be problem solvers. Uh, They've been studied for cognitive abilities in spiders because of how diverse their approaches will be to different situations. The angle they'll come at and the approach and technique they'll use is complicated. Now, once a spider catches its prey, very briefly, they tend to digest their prey in an interesting way. Uh, They begin pre-orally, is the phrase I found. Which is the digestion happens in big part outside of the body and then is brought in. There are typically two ways that spiders go about this. They either, after catching the prey, puncture it. Uh, Many of them will have like tooth-like structures on their chelicera to saw into the prey. And then they'll pump in digestive juices from their their mid-gut and liquefy the inside of the prey and then slurp it up, which is the classic way we think of spiders eating and then there'll be a husk left over of the exoskeleton of the insect that they will then discard the other way is less precise but they will chew the prey they'll use their chelicera to grab pieces not grab pieces chew it into a mush oh and then mix their digestive fluid into this ball this prey meatball now and then they will suck the juices out of this 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 blob and what will be left will be, I found, I, I don't remember which source I found this in, but I found one that described it as an amorphous wad of indigestible, primarily chitinous material. <laughs> uh, it's like if you ate an orange by just sucking all the juice out until all that was left was the skin. Yeah, that would be the first one. This one would be like if you put an orange in your mouth, chewed it all up, and then drank the juice and spit all the pulp back out. <laughs> <laughs> and there was just a wad of dried orange yeah. that you have drained, but you didn't do it cleanly. Ugh. In both cases, when they suck up the fluid, uh, it's filtered. They have internal filters to get rid of all the physical particles. So it's just a liquid diet. Right. Some other key features, also famous among spiders, they do tend to have eight eyes. Mm-hmm. There are some that have lost a pair and have six eyes. These are typically grouped into the anterior median, anterior lateral, posterior median, and posterior lateral pairs of eyes, each of which is a single lens. So they are multi-eyed, but not compound-eyed, like a fly or dragonfly. Now, most spiders have very poor vision, especially your web-building spiders do not rely on vision. They are feeling vibrations to detect their prey, and so they are not needing to see around much, though groups like wolf spiders and jumping spiders have very good vision, though in slightly different ways. Uh, wolf spiders tend to have very large posterior median eyes, which means their very large front-facing binocular vision eyes have a reflective surface, which means if you go to a place where there are many wolf spiders out hunting at night and you shine a flashlight, you will see the eye shine, yeah. like looking for crocs <laughs> out on a lake. <laughs> All the little sparkles. Mm-hmm. Uh, jumping spiders, it tends to be the main eyes, mm-hmm. which they are daylight hunters. They do not have a reflective surface. But the vast majority are using silk both to catch their prey and to sense their environment while they're on their web. Silk is not exclusive to spiders, uh, but it is particularly notable to them. 
Uh, other insects, you know, other arthropods use silk uh, uh, for cocoons. Moths use silk for their cocoons. There are other things with silk-producing organs. Uh, spiders, though, use it in many more ways than any of those groups, and it is probably one of the most defining features for their success. Like, it is often attributed to probably why we have so many spiders is because of their diverse use of silk. Now, we'll get into more detail on the ways they use silk, but the silk itself, just for background, is emitted from structures called spigots, which are found on spinnerets, which are limb-like structures, probably derived from previous limbs on the abdomen, cool. uh, toward the back, so like itty-bitty little leg-like structures covered in these spouts, these spigots, that exude liquid silk that becomes thread-like, not on contact with air, but as it is drawn out. Okay. The process of drawing it out changes its molecular structure. Now, these spinnerets are very mobile. Uh, they're maneuverable to get the silk where it needs to be. Each spinneret will bear many, many spigots, uh, but each spigot will only be attacked to one silk gland, which there are six different kinds. So each spigot will only produce one kind of silk, but each spinneret can produce multiple kinds because it has okay. lots of different kinds of spigots on it. The mesotheles, that one primitive group, is weird for their spinnerets. Their spigots are on the underside of the abdomen, not the end of the abdomen. Gotcha. Toward the belly, which is a more ancestral place for it to be. They use this web for a variety of features. But the famous one is the web, which when you're thinking of a spider web, that's called an orb web. Right. That's that sort of circular. Yes. With a spiral mm -hmm. of web going out from the middle that's hanging up uh, between branches. That's an orb web. Orb weavers are a big group of spiders. And we'll get into them when we get more detail on the webs. Uh, but really quick, I want to mention just a couple of other oddball spiders. Typically, spiders are considered to be very solitary. Uh, there are, though, social spiders. There are a number of different groups that have developed social behavior. These tend to form communal webs and aid each other in prey capture, but also egg protection and, and young rearing. They're not quite as complex as like a eusocial ant nest or, or beehive because all the females can and will mate. So they don't have the caste system but there are communal spiders. But another oddly common weird thing that spiders do is mimic ants. Yeah. There's like 300 different kinds of spiders that mimic ants that have myrmecophory as their behavior. <laughs> they look uncannily like ants. Now, most of these are jumping spiders. That is by far the most common. Uh, and the reason for this is most likely because ants are scary. And... Other arthropod predators don't want to mess with ants. Yep. Even spiders. Yep. And it is very common for jumping spiders to be the prey of bigger jumping spiders. <laughs> so, but bigger jumping spiders very often are noted to avoid ants. Yeah. So if you can look like an ant. Because ants are scary and they travel in groups. Yep. You mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. <laughs> <laughs> and the way they achieve this is they have an elongated cephalothorax with pretty long chelicera, so their mouth parts stick out and mimic the head. Mm -hmm. Their body is a little bit more elongated like an ant body. There's even a false waist, both in the cephalothorax and the abdomen, to mimic that little, I don't remember what's called, that the section between the abdomen and thorax of an ant. And then they tend to wave their front pair of 
legs around like antennae. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Very good mimics. Very convincing. Good to be an ant. And that is by no means the limit to weird spiders. We'll mention a few more throughout the episode, but this is a big group with lots of cool things. Very diverse, very successful, very strange. So as usual, when we do episodes like this, if there's a spider we end up skipping... Let us know and tell us why it's your favorite. Tell us your favorite spiders. (laughs) We'd love to hear it. But to wrap up this first section, let's do a quick jaunt through the early evolution of spiders. Now, arachnids have, their likely origins are marine. They came from the ocean. They were one of the groups to come onto land, separate from the other land invading arthropods. Yep. So they did not, it wasn't that. Arthropods came on land and then split into arachnids and the others. Right. Arachnids were one of the emerging groups. Which means they had to solve land problems on their own, which means they have slightly different anatomical solutions. You know, their, their outer cuticle became waxy to reduce water loss. Uh, but one of the most notable ones is that they developed book lungs. Right. From their ancestral book gills. Right, which is what we see in things like horseshoe crabs. Yes, they have book gills. A layered section of gills that can move separately from each other and kind of flap like the pages of a book. They can't pump water, but they can agitate it. Right. And the book lungs are a similar structure based off those gills. Very unique to the Chelicerata. Now, the earliest members, there has been debate over the years, the earliest spider-like spider cousins tend to be showing up in the Devonian. Okay. Around 380 million years ago or thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, There's a group called the Trigonotarbids, which are some of the earliest land arthropods uh, that were big during this time. Very spider-like will often be referenced when talking about early spiders, but are not spiders. Right. They are arachnids and very, very spider-looking. They've got eight legs. They're living on land, which... Basically, all spiders are terrestrial, minus a couple mm-hmm. that spend time around water and only one that spends time underwater. They've got the book lungs. They've got the pedipalps toward the mouth and similar mouth parts. So, like, very spider-esque. But they lack both silk, no spinnerets or spigots, and venom. Okay. So they're not producing the good spider stuff. Yeah, they're not producing the things that we there's, need there's you to have. Spiders on the outside. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> You're missing some important ingredients. They can do almost everything a spider can. <laughs> now, for a long time, the oldest spider would often be listed as Atercopus fimbriungus, which is a Middle Devonian spider in quotes right now. It was originally thought to be a mesotheli. It has what seems to be spider-like spinnerets. It sure does have, seem to check all the boxes. But more recently, 2008, we're able to identify it as not a spider, but actually put it into a newly identified group at that time, the Ur-Araniida, which was created as a sister group to Aranids. Right. These are the just outside of spy, their ancestral cousins. Yes. And one of the things that defines them is they tend to have spinnerets, but also the flagelliform telson, which is the whip scorpion thing. Oh. So picture, spiders with tails. Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's weird. Picture a spider as spidery as you can think, but with a tail. Oh, uh, cool. And, oh, I, and I should correct, they produce silk, but they tend not to have spinnerets. So they tend to have spigots. Gotcha. But not structures that those are on. Right. Which makes me think of like platypuses don't 
Yeah, have nipples. Ta- technically have nipples, but they produce milk. Yep. <laughs> Just sweat some silk. Yep. <laughs> the actually earliest spiders come in in the Carboniferous. Okay. Makes sense. If, yep. if you had asked me to guess when this major group of terrestrial arthropods <laughs> showed up, yeah, Carboniferous seems to be the time to do it. Now, there's still some vagueness. There's lots of debate on some of the specimens. Many have been incorrectly identified at times, but... It is typically estimated that the earliest spiders probably showed up around 300 million years ago. They would have either been very reminiscent of or belonged to the mesotheli, the segmented spiders. And it is thought that during this time, the transition to true spiders would have been developing spinnerets and losing that tail. Yeah. And so those would be the two main things that we see happen during this time. But during this time, the Uraranidae were still doing great. That often happens. It's not that they gave gave way to spiders. Mm-hmm. They existed together for a while. And they were probably very closely related to that group. So it would have been, this is when true spiders showed up, but also a bunch of other spider-y things. Right. Uh, a Carboniferous Explorer would classify spiders. Some of them have tails. Yes, right? <laughs> they were also almost all probably ground-dwelling at this time. As we get into the Permian, uh, our record is not as well. Uh, we did not have arachnid fossils from the permian until 1998 wow so not a great record here it was a trigonotarbid again which as you said are not technically true spiders by current classification arachnids not arania right i guess we lost all those nice coal swamps from the carboniferous that might have been preserving all those cool bug fossils yeah so in the permian you're not getting them anymore well and also and we'll get into this in the next section the fossil record for spiders is not great. Yeah. Our first spiders discovered were discovered in 2005 from this time. Permarachne is the genus. It is almost surely a mesotheli uh, that has those features, uh, but it also has elongated structure on the back that kind of looks like that flagelliform telson, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe a long spinneret. Okay. And then as we enter the Permian Triassic, extinction uh we don't know what happens to spiders there like yeah our fossil record just is not good enough not enough data on either side of the mass extinction to know what happened nope but in the triassic spiders are still around surprisingly they made it i know you're on the edge of your seats (laughs) and we see some of our first uh, major modern groups we see the megalomorphs and the araniomorphs we see our first members of those two groups here in the triassic rosa megali is often considered the first of the megalomorphs. It's a five centimeter, so it's not a very big tarantula, uh, itty bitty, from the family Hexathilidae, which is still around today. These include things like the Sydney funnel web spider and stuff like that. Our first araniomorphs, which would include things like Triasuranius, already resemble orb weavers. Uh, they've got long, slender legs, no scopula, no fur on the feet for running on the ground. I believe even the leg length pattern, like the which legs were long and short on the body are similar to orb weavers today. Oh, interesting. So it's likely that these were already weaving orbs. Yeah, very modern style spiders. Yep, so by Triassic, we already had spiders that we'd recognize as, at least in their shape. Yeah. Very recognizable to today. This continues into the Jurassic. This is when we see the Archaeidae, the pelican spiders show up, and they look very similar as well. We also see... Both groups diversifying, so spiders are just doing great. This continues throughout the Mesozoic at that point. Like, 
we are starting to see just spiders diversify. A lot of the modern groups are showing up. And then interestingly, we do have lots of good information for the in Cretaceous. And it actually seems that spiders made it through the Cretaceous pretty fine. A study in 2003 examined spiders through the mid-Cretaceous and in-Cretaceous extinctions and showed that they suffered basically no decline, at least on the family level. Okay. That family numbers did not change notably over those extinctions. Uh, Now, why this is exactly is hard to say, but it was proposed that it was their generalist nature, the fact that even a specialized spider could easily transition to another arthropod. Yeah. Uh, So spiders came through the Cretaceous pretty all right, and already by that point, we had a lot of our modern groups. Yeah. So spiders were not all the individual species, but spiders as we know them, into the Cretaceous and through it. Yeah, it got started early and then stayed that way. Yep. Now, that was a brief overview of their evolution, but the fossil record of spiders is worth noting in and of itself because it is both very sparse and very good depending on what kind of fossil you're looking at. (laughs) So let's talk about fossil spiders after the break. Let's do it. The spider fossil record is bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, that I could have told you that. I saw it noted as notoriously incomplete. Yeah. In one one article. <laughs> this is like it might makes me think of when we talked about the fossil record of octopuses. Yeah. It's like yeah, they're just what fossil record for the most part. Episode 16, by the way. Yes. That's when we did that. <laughs> uh, it's it's to the point that if you find a spider in a fossil site, it has the potential to note that fossil site as a Lagerstaden. <laughs> and this is an exceptional site, we know, because we found a spider yes. in it. <laughs> that the presence of spiders mean you've got a good one. I think one thing that encapsulates this well was, at least at the time of the article, which was in 2009, I believe, uh, there were only two fossil specimens of spiders found from Africa. Yeah. Like, all of Africa. <laughs> Now, that doesn't mean we don't have fossil spiders. There actually are quite a few. There's a mention some in the news. Yep. <laughs> There's nearly a thousand identified species of fossil spider. Okay. But almost all of these, like like 90% are from amber. Yeah, that doesn't surprise yeah. me. Spiders are predominantly known from amber uh, from all over in various times. Uh, right. All which, the ambers. Which doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Because if you have amber, which is a type of that a type of preservation episode 62 that can capture little things like that can sample your invertebrate on uh, on land among the trees ecosystem it's gonna catch spiders yes exactly uh spiders spend a lot of time in trees right trees (laughs) on average every tree swallows seven spiders and it's sad (laughs) spider eating trees (laughs) now most of these are after the Cretaceous. Most of these are younger than 65 million years old. Yeah, which is where most of our amber is. Yes. You know, so this includes Baltic, Dominican, Mexican, French amber, <laughs> like all over, even some North American. But the oldest amber we have does go back to Cretaceous. About 130 million years old is the oldest spider-bearing amber that has been discovered as of yet from Lebanon. Uh, but we also find them in amber from New Jersey, here in the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, Myanmar, Siberia, Canada, and European amber as well. If you've got amber, you got spiders. 
So that's where we get most of our info from. Uh, Amber's great because it preserves you know, in 3D. It's great because it can preserve other stuff along yeah. with the spider. Uh, it's These are known as sin inclusions where more than one thing, two or more things are found in the amber. Yep, you could have a, a pair of brother spiders. You could have spider and prey. You could have spider and spider stuff. Yep, we've to give a brief list of the spider behaviors and things we found in amber with spiders is egg sacs and babies, as we mentioned in the news, mm-hmm. mating, predation, mimicophory, ant mimicking, yep. parasitism, silk production, and them being carried by stuff or carrying stuff. <laughs> I also seem to remember there being some years ago a, a spider found in amber that was famous for preserving really impressive genitalia. Oh, yes, yes. I do remember that coming up. It's like a spy, like a really impressive spider penis in amber. Yep, yep. I don't remember what the story about that one was. Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, like, all sorts of crazy spider things have been found in amber. Uh, also, sub-fossil amber. Yeah, yeah, copal. Copal. And this is another common source for spider fossils. Uh, these tend to be much younger, Miocene and younger. So, mm-hmm. we're saying just a few million years typically but these are found from places like kenya tanzania mozambique and madagascar Uh, so still found in a variety of places it tends to be softer more yellowy still giving us spiders and then that's about it there are non-amber spiders but they are crazy rare yeah you can get invertebrates like that pressed into sediment Mm -hmm. or segments preserved here and there when it comes to anything from the Jurassic and back, that's the only fossils we have. We don't have amber. We don't have amber, so we have to find them in sediment. They're very rare, but we do find them in those fine-grained sediments pressed between the layers, like you just said. This is also where we tend to find our large spiders. Yeah, which makes sense. Yep. Because the larger things are pref- preferred by fossilization. Yeah, well, it's larger things fossilize better in sediment than tiny things, and... They don't get stuck in amber yes. as easily. <laughs> so our large spiders tend to come from sediment. Our tiny spiders tend to come from amber. But then on top of this, there's also been lots of misidentification. I was just thinking about, <laughs> I've heard a number of stories of things that either were identified as a spider and it turned out to be wrong, or there was one famous case not very long ago of a fossil that was originally identified as a spider and turned out to have been modified. Yeah. Like that it that it was it wasn't like a fake chimera fossil, but the fossil had been modified before I think the scientists got it, which led to a misidentification at first. Yep. There are lots of examples of things that were thought to be spiders and then turned out to be spider like. Yep. Probably the most famous is Megarachne. Mm-hmm. Megarachne was the largest spider to ever live, except it wasn't. Right. Giant spider that isn't a spider. This is a Carboniferous arthropod from Argentina. It was often considered to be a giant mygalomorph, a tarantula cousin. This is based off of the shape of the carapace, the front protrusions, which seemed very Chalicero-like. And it got the name Megarachne because in total length, it was about a foot long, 34 centimeters. And its leg span would have been 20 inches or 50 centimeters, making it... By far the biggest spider that ever walked the planet, as far as we know. Huge. More recent new specimens have shown that it's actually a Eurypterid. Yeah. So sea scorpions. <laughs> yeah. Still cool. 
a sea scorpion that looks like a spider is a cool find. Yeah, and is walking around on... It's a weird sea scorpion. Yeah. Uh, also a relatively small sea scorpion. Yeah. <laughs> so, unfortunately, taxonomy means it's, it will always be called Mega Arachne. Yes. Uh, the giant spider. Yep. Whoops. Yeah. Oops. So, that is another <laughs> issue with the spider fossil record. There's a lot of spidery things that are real close and since a lot of times the way to distinguish between it are features like spinnerets and venom if we're if those portions aren't preserved well you sure are shaped like a spider can you make a web can you make a web i need you to make a web come on now (laughs) not doing it because if because if we don't have that then it's hard to determine but that's not to say we don't have notable cool findings in the fossil record one of them are fossils of Archaeidae, the pelican spiders, actually revealed that they had a much wider range than they do today. Oh. Today they are only found in southern Africa, Madagascar, and Australia, which for a long time made pe- led to the assumption that they were Gondwanan, that that's where they were. They live in the southern continents, and that's that. Yep. When all they were smushed together, they stayed in the south, and that's probably where they originated and where they stayed. Fossils, though, have shown that they were spread out into Europe, Myanmar, and China. Oh. So many northern continents. Yeah, across what is today the old world. Yes. So we now know that they used to be much more spread and are only now reduced. Cool. A fascinating thing to learn about an ancient group. We also have fossil convergent evolution with modern groups. The Loganomegapidae, which are a Cretaceous family, one of the few examples of a fully extinct group. Like, a lot of groups make it to today, especially from this time, but this is an extinct family. These have big posterior median eyes, which are the same eyes that are enlarged in wolf spiders today. Okay. So possibly a similar hunting style. Mm Mm-hmm. So it may have been living in a very similar way, a separate evolution of the running, jumping spider. Yeah. And though we lost Mega Arachne, we do still have some big spiders. The largest known fossil spider is Mongolarachne jurassica. Sounds like it's from the Jurassic of Mongolia. It is. Well done. Uh, Uh, It is a spider. It is a spider (laughs) from China, about 165 million years old. This is currently our biggest known fossil spider. Now, before you get super excited, it is not the biggest compared to ones today. Right. Uh, That was my guess. Yeah. It is still big. Total body length is about two and a half centimeters. uh, So about an inch. And the front legs reach about five and a half centimeters or just a little more than two inches. Okay. Which puts them in a similar size category to today's golden orb weaver spiders or banana spiders, which are those ones with the really long abdomen. They tend to have their legs in two up front, two hanging back and make those giant webs with the zigzag in the middle. Yeah. Just really impressive. Those are some, those are the biggest orb weavers today. So this was a several centimeter spider, mm-hmm. or several inch spider even. And it is very similar in shape to golden orb weavers. It was actually originally put with the Nephilids, which is that group. Okay. It was grouped there and has more recently been regrouped into a different genus. But it puts it among the biggest web builders, if it is also building webs. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's cool, because and, and also helps with the fact that the biggest one, which sounds like it's a fifth the size of our modern big ones. Yep. But sorry, they were out there, I'm sure. Yeah, and that's the thing is that means we don't have a fossil record of the truly giant tarantulas right. like we have today. Right. 
like you said, most of our record comes from amber, which yep. tends to trap smaller things. <laughs> which these get their foot sucking and go, ew. <laughs> We've also been able to get cool things like environmental and climactic information from spiders. Both of these reference uh, Baltic and Dominican amber, uh, which are two of the most common sources of spiders uh, in the tertiary. Baltic amber being by far the most productive. Uh, more than twice the amount of spiders have been found in Baltic amber than Dominican, which is about 500 species to 150 species. So, But still, a bunch in both. Way to go, Baltic amber. Good job. But that diversity, that abundance has let us analyze the trends there, and we've been able to find some cool things. One, that greater amount of spiders in Baltic amber might be suggestive of the environment of the Baltic region at the time, but more importantly, the size of the spiders. Uh, there are many large web-building spiders found in the amber, in Baltic amber, as compared to smaller web-builders in the Dominican amber, but the cursorial, the running wolfish spiders in both are basically the same size. Huh. What that suggests is a more dense or structurally complex forest and environment in Baltic than Dominican. Yeah. Because when we see spiders in more densely packed forests today, we tend to see bigger web builders. Yeah, that makes sense. We've also been able to kind of take a look at the environments based off of the spiders from the Baltic region at the time those spiders were alive to today. Spiders are indicators of climactic regimes in, chain, in regions. Uh, they're very dependent on it. So we can use them to differentiate climactic areas and effects. So we can do it in the fossil record as well. And what we found is in the Baltic region, the forest was much less seasonal in the past than it is today based off the spiders we're finding. Hmm. Whilst in the Dominican, it's stayed fairly tropical because the spiders are basically the same from then to today. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So just, to, well, that it's a cool thing you can do with animals like spiders, which are so diverse and abundant, is you can study populations of them. Yes. To get a sense of trends in like, not just this species tends to live in these places, but this percentage of our species follows this pattern, which is something we see in the tropics. Yes. That's a cool statistical analysis you can do with animals like these. Yeah, so even though the fossil record of spiders is very lacking, it doesn't mean we aren't able to learn a ton from it. Yeah. Now, in my opinion, one of the coolest things about amber as a fossil preserver is that it can trap other stuff, and one of the things it has trapped is webbing. Spider web, fossil spider web in amber. Yes. So cool. So let's talk about webs. Finally... Webs. We're, it, it's, it's happening. <laughs> We're going to talk about... you've been waiting yes. for. <laughs> Let's go over the crazy complexity of spider webs. Now, first and foremost, spider silk is an amazing biological structure. Yeah, yeah and engineers hate him. <laughs> this spider has one weird trick. Engineers hate him. Yes, exactly. Like, this is something we've been drooling over from a, a bioengineering standpoint for yeah. years. Done a good job. Now, silk... In its raw form is a liquid crystalline structure. Wait, right off the bat. That's very cool. <laughs> it is liquid inside the body. We don't fully understand the process that takes it from liquid to silk. It's, it's a complex molecular physics process. But as mentioned earlier, it is not drying 
It is being drawn out, and that is physically changing it into silk. You're stretching this liquid into a thread. Yes. It, it is weaving straw into gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These spiders are all Rumpelstiltskin. But it is typically when they place it on a surface and then walk away from it, the pressure of them walking away pulls it out of the abdomen, out of the spigots, and a piece of silk is physically impressive Typically, it is noted being as strong as nylon. Mm -hmm. It has similar tensile strength to other biological things like cellulose, chitin, and collagen. So the other building blocks for the other major groups of life. But can withstand about 10 times the force before breaking. Yeah, which is why it's so good at holding down supervillains. Yep. And catching trains. Yeah. (laughs) Now, as mentioned earlier, other groups use silk. Moths use silk. Yeah. Uh, there, are, There's another, I can't remember the name of the insect, that has silk-producing structures on its front legs and makes little tunnels that it goes through. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah there are other silk-producing arthropods. It's not unique to spiders. No. But, man. But they, they are the true artistes. Exactly. No group comes close to using silk in a... In as wide a variety of ways as spiders do. Right. It's like it's like saying, yeah, humans aren't the only ones that use tools and language. Yeah. Right. But we're pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> spiders. Yeah. You really, you have cornered the market. And when we say they use it in a variety of ways, they use it for everything. Reproduction, it is key. Every spider makes an egg sack, an egg case of silk. Right. They are building the little purse, their little egg container. That is universal. Males also build a web pouch for their sperm to transport it to the female. Because if you if you can make fabric, why wouldn't you weave little <laughs> bags for things? Just doilies for everything. <laughs> There's also the drag line, which basically all the web building spiders use. Uh, jumping spiders use this as a safety line. Mm-hmm. But it's also not just for web building, but nest building, a lot of your ground-dwelling spiders will build either burrows or nests among the underbrush and coat it with webbing, both for structure and protection, but also to give them a sensing of the environment around them. Right, that they can sense what's happening by feeling through the web. And for those that burrow, it can also help save them during floods. It can trap air... And allow them to hopefully not drown <laughs> if the ground floods. Web, the all-purpose tool. It's amazing. Get yourself some web today. Uh, and then it just gives them superpowers like ballooning. Right. And they also, they can fly. <laughs> baby spiders. <laughs> not all of them, but many groups. Baby spiders will do something called ballooning, where they will go up to the top of something. Yeah, and the, then... the highest peak of the tallest tower. Yes, yes. The highest room of the tallest tower? Yeah. Up there. <laughs> High up. Way up there. And then they will exude a bunch of loose threads of silk until it is caught and picked up by air currents and lifted in the air. Or at least that was how we typically thought it worked. Aerodynamic studies don't support that that's enough to lift them up. And so there have been hypotheses and some evidence that electrical fields are actually what the web's interacting with to lift them. And so electromagnetism 
is they're interacting with just the rampant electric fields around the environment. Because when you're the size of a baby spider, (laughs) just fundamental forces of physics are enough to throw you through the air. Yep. Now, I don't know that we've actually pinned down the mechanics of how that might be working. Mm -hmm. But there was research that found that there was evidence that found that spiders can sense electrical fields and will react to them. And it, in certain cases, can cause them to elicit the ballooning behavior. So we don't know for sure that the electric fields is what's lifting them, but they seem to be responding to them. Right. That's a signal to them to initiate launch. Yep. So webs... Pretty versatile. Mm-hmm. S- silk, indeed, even when it's not being webs. Exactly. But... But, but also webs. Webs. Yeah. <laughs> now, there are a variety of spider webs. The most famous is the orb web. Right. The classic, this is what you think of when you think of a web. Cir- concentric circles with lines through them, the spider web. Yep. Typically, family Araniidae are the orb weavers. Mm-hmm. The orb web weavers. These webs consist of a central hub where the spider tends to sit, where there is not any of the capture thread. Right. Then you have radial threads that go out from the hub to the frame, which is the outer circular webbing. Right. And then those, some of those radial threads connect to the environment around it. Right. Those are attached to the branches or the fence posts or your car or whatever the spider has built its web on. And then there is the catching spiral. Which is the best term. Man, that's some Magnus stuff. (laughs) And this is the sticky adhesive thread that is laid out in a spiral pattern from the center toward the edge. And this is what catches prey. Now, this is adhesive silk. The rest of the threads are not sticky. Right. Which is what allows the spider to carefully step to not get stuck. Yeah. Spiders are not just innately immune to their own web. They are just better at moving around it than everyone else. They just set all the traps (laughs) so they know where they are. Now, various orb weavers will build various versions of this orb web. Uh, Some of them do it vertically to catch flying insects. Some of them do it horizontally to catch falling insects or insects taking off. Mm -hmm. So they'll build it like over a bush and catch things taking off. Oh, mean. Right? Uh, that's called ca- ca- uh, spawn camping. Spawn, spawn, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a legitimate strategy. And it's a legitimate strategy. <laughs> so there's a lot of ingrained mechanics in the way these webs are built. It is a genetic behavior. Yeah. Uh, so there's something you can study the genes of spiders and learn about the the web building behavior you're likely to see from the various groups because it is how that spider does it. Yeah, it's built period. In. That's very cool. <laughs> right. Now, there are other orb weavers that build very different kinds of webs. There are cribbolate orb weavers, which make cribbolate web or hackled silk. This is a woolly, a fuzzy thread, not a sticky thread. It is created by a structure called the cribellum, which is a modified spinneret with thousands, like 40,000 spigots on it. Itty bitty to make really fine thread. And then... A secondary structure that's comb-like, a bunch of fibers called the calamistrum that basically teases the web, like bunches it up and makes it into this fuzzy, woolly thread. Uh, Is it like tangly? Exactly. This is particularly good in catching into the, the hairs and spiny body parts of insects. 
with no actual adhesion. Yeah, they just get caught. You just get tangled up in this. It's like the fake spider silk that you get for Halloween decorations. Mm -hmm. And like get it caught on a hangnail and like caught on any rough surface. And it just grabs onto it and it's impossible to get off. (laughs) That's what this web does. Cool. This kind of silk is often seen in the Uluboridae, the group of spiders that lost venom. Oh. So they let their web just tangle up the prey and then wrap it tightly and then just drench it in digestive enzymes and suck it up that way. You also get, though, much simpler webs. Uh, Sheet webs are very commonly seen among your mesothelae and the mygalomorphs. So your tarantulas and ground-dwelling spiders tend to make sheet webs, like tarps of webbing that are not there to catch the prey, but to act as a trigger. Right. So they'll make a sheet of web on the ground. The spider will wait off to the side, often in a funnel, you know, a bit of web that is connected. So this is where the funnel of funnel webs comes from. Mm -hmm. And then when something falls on it, the web's not really going to catch it, but then the spider can sense it and immediately pounce. Right. It's a tripwire. Yeah. And the trap that you're triggering is the spider. Is me. (laughs) You also get some weird uses of web. Uh, like the bolo spider. Yeah. <laughs> this is a orb weaver. It's in the orb weaver group, but it doesn't make orb webs. Instead, it takes a strand of web and then makes a gooey globule at the end, sometimes multiple of them, with a bunch of bunched up webbing there. And then it sits and it holds it off like a lasso just off of its front two arms. When it senses a moth come by, it'll swing it and hit them with the sticky end and catch them on the end of their bolos. Ridiculous. (laughs) That's ridiculous. It's insane. And watching them do it is like, you're just using your legs like people arms. Yeah. You're just swinging that around. (laughs) Yeah. You're just, you're just roping your some moths and it's insane. Uh, You also get things like the ogre face spider also known as the net casting spiders, which make a stretchy bit of web, like a miniature web, which they place between their front four legs. And it is super stretchy so they can expand it and then thrust it forward onto an insect. And and then when they let go, it springs around the insect and captures them. (laughs) That's so cool. You just made tools. Yeah. This is just tool use for a hyper carnivorous group of animals. Yep. Yep. It's, I decided to do something weird with this stuff that comes out our butt. This is just like, it, it, it makes me think of the, anytime you've got a movie or something that wants to demonstrate the effectiveness of the so-called primitive people. Yes. In, this is like the Ewoks fighting <laughs> the empires. Like, yeah, well, we've got our net things and we've got our swingy thing. It's like, Whoa! yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of how different spiders use their webs makes me think of uh, my one example of cool spider web knowledge is dewdrop spiders, which I know about because I did a I wrote about them in a SciShow episode about kleptoparasites. Oh, yeah. These are spiders that are specialized for hanging out on the webs of other spiders and stealing the things that get caught in there. <laughs> and I, th- if I remember right, some species at least are only known to do that they have abandoned their ability to hunt for themselves and just hide in other spiders webs and steal their stuff that gets caught 
But also there are some cases where they will just eat the silk. Yes. Yep. They'll just steal the silk. Because that's something spiders can do. Like, uh, I I told my friends that one time, and they all thought I was making up a fact. <laughs> spiders can recycle their silk by eating it. Yeah, they just eat it back up. And make more silk out of the silk they just ate. <laughs> because cause you're a 3D printer. And one of the things that I read about dewdrop spiders is that it is thought that they evolved from web builders and just became web parasites because they're really good at navigating a mm-hmm. web. Like, who better to plunder a web than a spider that they probably used to hunt in webs and have evolved into these parasite? And as potential evidence of their ancestry is every now and then they revert. <laughs> there are cases known where dewdrop spiders will suddenly just eat the spider yep. that keeps the web. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, web paras spiders that specialize on parasitizing the webs of other spiders yeah, that use webs as an environment for them to feed in, but they didn't make it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now with all of this ridiculous diversity, of course, the question of how did it get started? Mm-hmm. How did you start making this ridiculous biological tool? Yeah. We are after all a paleontology. podcast. <laughs> so the evolution of silk, we don't know, right? We don't know how it got started, but there are a couple of, more prominent hypotheses as to what might have happened. The two scenarios you'll typically see put forth is that either it started as egg covering, Mm -hmm. uh, but that it was some sort of protein exudate stuff that they'd cover their eggs with from glands on their abdomen or legs, and that then it became fibrous and sticky, and that that eventually became silk which could have been due to it being more productive at protecting the eggs or adhering them to stuff. Or it's that a protein mucus membrane over the abdomen that was protective of the abdomen potentially to hold in moisture during the transition from water to land. Okay. While the book gills were not yet book lungs. They needed to hold in moisture so that their gills would work. Exactly. While we were still dealing with gills, this might have been a fluid sac, a land scuba tank, that then it became fibrous and became better at water retention. Either scenario becoming fibrous is beneficial because webbiness would make it better at both water retention or air retention, depending on which one you're wanting. Yep. (laughs) So regardless of what oozes, <laughs> what sort of goo did this begin as? Which is one of those where, like, it's tempting to think, well, we have to explain how they make these chemicals. Well, I mean, arthropods, animals in general, secrete a lot of stuff. Yeah, we're good at that. We make I'm a doing lot it of right now. goo. I'm, we you probably cut <laughs> that out. That's it's warm in here. I'm sec- we're secreting. <laughs> I, arthropods are making goo all the time. What trajectory did you take to make your goo into silk? Yes, exactly. Because once you have silk, this is like we've talked about a number of other evolutionary innovations where it's like, yeah, once you developed an egg or once you developed teeth or once you kind of got the general idea of this structure, it's easy to see how selective pressures then went, okay, this is actually beneficial for a million different possible uses 
that could then take off in a particular trajectory. Because it's easy to reshape or repurpose. Yes. The origin of the structure is much harder to figure out. But yeah, if you have a tooth, you can make it long, you can make it sharp, you can make it flat. That's easy. So spiders started with some sort of goo that they needed to do some sort of purpose. Water retention and protecting eggs are both very essential, important tasks. Which we see still being used as web today. And then if that leads to you developing an all-purpose tool, then you might very well find yourself evolving to use it for all purposes. Exactly. Uh, One great example of the water situation, because it can kind of act like a artificial, simple lung, because gas can transfuse through it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can act like a membrane, but it can also work very well. You'd think that web would be, because most spiders are terrestrial, it's like, yeah, well, web only is good above ground. Right. You know, it's not going to work in the water. If you get it wet, it's going to get all soggy. Yeah, it's going to get all droopy and It's going to be like wet hair, and it's going to be gross. Uh, And yet... Our Gyronetta aquatica, the diving bell spider, <laughs> is the one aquatic underwater spider that uses silk to create a diving bell, a upside down capsule in the water that it then will transfer air to, I believe on its abdomen, if I remember right, uh, that cling, you know, little air bubbles that cling to its back. It'll put it in there and have a dry environment inside this web cup that they've put underwater. (laughs) You know, very much earlier on in this episode, you mentioned uh, in passing that there is one species of spider known to be aquatic, to live underwater. And you said it and we kept on and I went, I I sure hope he he says what it is. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. This is one of my favorite spiders. It's such a very cool adaptation. Well, it's like like the first time I learned about diving bells and how old they are. Like how long we've been doing detailed underwater study by just making a big metal upside down bowl and sitting in it. Yeah. Capturing air as we go down. I was like, wow, I can't believe we had that technology that far back. The fact that a spider has it is so ridiculously... Uh, indescribably awesome. I love it. What we need to live in true fear of is the day that the spiders and the cephalopods get together (laughs) and shake so many hands. (laughs) I just pictured this, this Tarzan-esque moment of them encountering each other and each putting up a limb progressively (laughs) and then neither running out, neither having limb. It just keeps going. It just keeps going. (laughs) And then... And then Phil Collins' music starts playing, and, <laughs> and a union is made, and it's awesome and beautiful and terrifying. Yeah, and it's the end. It's the, it's the beginning. <laughs> now, while the evolution of silk is harder to pin down, we do have fossil evidence for the spigots and spinnerets, the structures producing the silk. So we can track when we see versions of that. Our earliest spigots go back to Adderkops, the previously thought oldest spider, which did not have spinnerets but does have spigots. It does seem to have silk-producing spigots. Though because they are not produced on a spinneret, it probably wasn't doing anything fancy Mm -hmm. with its web. It was probably just lining egg cases or lining homes, you know, burrows, and it's uh, wherever it was hanging out. There wouldn't have been much refined web placement. Uh, The spinnerets really achieve a lot of precision. Otherwise, you're just wiping silk like a glue stick. Right. And I want you all to visualize that image. (laughs) The earliest spinnerets show up about 250 million years ago. And 
and specifically the earliest ones at the end of the abdomen, and it's in the megalomorphs and the araniomorphs are modern groups. Yeah. The first time we see that is the first time we see modern-esque spiders. And this is where it gets kind of interesting, because once we see that, it now means the webs we recognize could be being produced, but we don't necessarily have any evidence that they are being. Right. So the potential for sheet webs and maybe even orb webs is there. Right. But was it happening? As you can imagine, webs don't fossilize very well. <laughs> now, one thing we do know is it's clear that spinnerets evolved from legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not legs spiders have, but ancestrally used to have on the abdomen. Right. So it would have been a reawaking of genetic material for previously present legs. Right. Or, or at least a repurposing of some vestige or something. Mm-hmm. So... It's not that ancient spiders had extra legs that then moved to become spinnerets, but developed what were ancestrally legs. Yes. <laughs> and it is very likely that ancestrally they had four pairs of spinnerets for eight spinnerets, whilst today almost all have six, three hmm. pairs. Uh, even though, like, when you think of a tarantula, you just see the two. Uh, there are a bunch, there are lots of little spinnerets uh, for six total, three pairings of yeah. spinnerets. I have to admit, I find it a little bit unsatisfying that they had eight <laughs> and they don't have eight anymore. Right. That's kind of your thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like you, you had the, you had <laughs> the number of the spider. Right. <laughs> now we do have some ways to maybe tease out when these different kinds of webs might've been showing up. Permarachne, which we mentioned earlier, the one that, that looked like a mesotheli from the Permian 270 million years ago. But had that long flagellic-like thing on the end. Right, the tail. That most likely are just really long spinnerets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they are long spinnerets, elongated spinnerets is something we see in funnel web building spiders. Tarantulas and oh. funnel web spiders. So it may be that it was building similar style sheet and funnel webs. Cool. Which is not really well known from mesotheles today. Uh, so it would be a new web building style for this group. If it is in this group and if that was what it was doing. Right. <laughs> which would suggest a more diverse set of behaviors and web building styles in the fossil record than the modern group. Yeah. And it might suggest that since that is a more early, an earlier branching group, that that behavior may have evolved earlier in spider evolution. Yes, exactly. That that might be the more basal web building that we start, which is very likely since most of the early spiders seem to be terrestrial down on the ground. Right. Not up in the uh, uh, building blocks of their environment. Now, as for the other webs, the aerial webs, off-the-ground webs, uh, there are some hints as to when spiders might have started to move in that direction. There are multiple aerial webs. You know, you have things like what called space webs, which are much more 3D than the 2D orb web and much more cup-shaped. So you do have other kinds of up in the branches or up in the environment webs, which ones of those were being built is hard to say necessarily, but we do have evidence physically on the spiders as to suggesting that they were making complex webs, not ground webs. Our first bit of evidence is looking at the genes thought to produce web building behavior. Okay. And examining the genetic drift it's suggested that orb spinning or something similar to it was in an advanced state by at least 136 million years ago. 
So early Cretaceous. Early Cretaceous. They had they potentially had the genetic basis for making complex webs. Yes. There is some potential evidence for it even further back into the Triassic, 200 million years ago. Triassoranius, which we mentioned, has long slender legs, no scopulae on the ends of its feet. It looks like an orb weaver. Mm -hmm. So it suggested that very likely we had web builders, orb weavers potentially, by the Triassic. But our actual earliest evidence of spiderweb webs is amber from early Cretaceous, 110 million years ago, from Spain, which has some aerial web trapped in it uh, with what seems to be prey items included. Cool. Yeah, there are some bits of a beetle, a mite, a wasp, and I think a fly, or a part of a wasp, which is the what's, early evidence... What's left of a wasp? <laughs> yeah, what is, what is remains, <laughs> which is the early ev direct evidence of predation, I believe, but the earliest evidence of an orb web. So, for sure, by the Cretaceous, spiders were making webs up in the air, but very likely earlier than that. Impossible to say, though, because we don't have the direct evidence. Yeah, that's very cool. It's very cool to know how early they were doing it. It doesn't surprise me at all to hear that they've been doing it since the Mesozoic, because a lot of our, especially arthropod stuff, mm -hmm. has been set in place for a very long time. The thing I like about the suggestion that they were building webs like that during the Cretaceous and possibly as far back as the Triassic is it means that all of our favorite dinosaurs had the problem of occasionally <laughs> walking through a spider web. Like T-Rex must have been so sad. Uh, just walk, get a spider web all over its face and like eh, can't oh, rub its face against the tree or something. That's where all the face biting was. Yeah, they were just taking the... Oh, let me get right. that for you, buddy. Go back to episode 120. <laughs> we call up Tom Holtz and Dave Hone. We figured it out. We know why Tyrannosaurus were biting each other. They were just getting the spider web off. Get it off. I don't care how. Now, there's your evidence for social behavior in Tyrannosaurus. How did this become a T-Rex episode? <laughs> we have fallen into the, the classic paleontology trap. You thought we weren't going to mention dinosaurs. <laughs> We are as far from T-Rex as we could possibly be. <laughs> Spiders have eight long arms. <laughs> but with that, we have gone through to spiders basically the way they are today and webs as we know them today. There is so much more we could say. Oh, yeah. It, there's so many cool spider things. Uh, I, I, I dove through so much interesting information that I didn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to hear more about spiders or other arachnids or other arthropods or really anything, let us know as usual. Well, because this is one of those where really we have very nice categorized groups of spiders. A tarantulas episode, we could do a ton. Yeah. You know, an orb weavers episode, a yeah. jumping spider episode. We could do a webs episode. You let us know. You tell us what you want. But before we wrap up the episode, we do have one last section, which we mentioned early on, our patron question. Hey, some of our patrons get to ask us questions to answer on the podcast. Absolutely. And so what is our question for today? Today's question is one of those uh, we picked it because it's fitting for this episode. Clara asks, the smallest insects are similar in size to single-celled amoebae and paramecia, and yet appear to be made of at least thousands of cells. How do these microscopically tiny cells function? Are there categorical differences between the cells of a micro multicellular animal and a macro multicellular animal? That's a really good question. Good question, Clara. Yeah. So 
the smallest insects around today are uh, a group called fairy flies. And they are so small. Oh, just itty, itty bitty. Like half a millimeter up to one millimeter is their size ranging. Yeah. Yeah, as the question said, literally the size of sing- some single-celled organisms. Yes. Like, paramecium outclass these insects. Yes. They'd <laughs> win in a fight. Yes, they would. And there are other examples of itty-bitty cells. I found, when looking this up, mycoplasms, which are the smallest self-replicating things. Uh, there are smaller viruses, but these are bacteria. They're prokaryotes. And they are about 300 to 600 nanometers, which I don't, I don't know what. Very small. I don't know how to compare that to anything. Extremely small. Itty bitty 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 bitty. Um, Quantum realm. And in both of these cases, there are specializations to being so small. Uh, yeah. But they are still functioning very much like a cell. Right. On another scale. Fairy flies do themselves have like anatomical adaptations yes. for being so small. Like their, their organs are weird. Their wings are shaped different. Their legs tend to be have fewer segments, uh, I believe. But also, yeah, their cells are adapted mm-hmm. in certain ways. Uh, in both of these small celled things, uh, very small genomes. Yeah. Their genes are much reduced to fit inside a smaller nucleus. Yeah, because <laughs> g- genetic material takes up space. Yep, <laughs> it does. <laughs> it is matter. It takes up space, and so you need less of it. They also tend to have like less cytoplasm inside the cells. Yeah, like, that's it's, the cell goo. Mm-hmm, much, much less reduced fluid. There's also some crazy things with like the anatomy. Uh, a lot of them have very simple uh, circulatory systems because you're not having to pump blood or or air far, so. It can just diffuse a lot of the time. And I think there are some that don't have hearts. Right. Because you don't need to pump it because it's just going to spread through your body passively. Yeah. Because you're super, super small. <laughs> a heart's just taking up space. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's efficiency you don't need. I believe that fairy fly nerve cells are anucleate. Yeah. They've gotten rid of the nucleus. No, take it up space. Yep. Kick it right out of there. Yeah. So they are specialized space conservative cells in some cases but there's nothing inherently fundamentally different about the way their cells are behaving as a cell right they are just small cells they're just small cells yeah. uh very reduced very it, it's like a, a a super economy car yeah it's still got all the parts a car has it doesn't have you know four doors it doesn't have a cup holder <laughs> it doesn't have a cup holder so it's it's reducing things but it's it's still got all the functional parts a car needs to be a car. Yeah. Uh, that's just kind of what's happening here. Yeah, there is a, a cool SciShow episode about fairy flies. Yeah. Uh, which I did not write, but it's a good episode anyway. <laughs> and you know it's good when when you're adv- <laughs> advocating for it when it's not yours. That's right, yeah, I didn't even write it. You just you listen to <laughs> Hank tell you about fairy flies. <laughs> so, yeah. Good question. Very, well, when I first saw this one come up, I went, Yeah. That's a great Are question. Are they different? <laughs> I want to know now. <laughs> I like it's one of the one of the trends that has emerged with this podcast is that uh, our listeners and our patrons spur us to learn new things. Yes. Well, it's it's because they go, hey, talk about this. And we go, huh? Well, yeah. yeah, that's a great idea. It was one of the guiding things that made us make this podcast is us going, hey, we want to teach people. But also we've been out of school for a while now and <laughs> and the brain's getting soggy. Yep. Like we need to keep the the mental muscles up. Yep. Uh, which the mental my brain's not a muscle. We went over that. Episode one twenty one talked all about brains. <laughs> uh, but so I love that 
including the listeners and the patrons, has only increased that. Yeah. It's only made it even more educational and brain exercising for us. For us, and then hopefully for all the people listening as well. So thanks for the awesome question, Clara. And thank you to all of our requesters for this episode. As always, if you have more stuff you want to hear us talk about, reach out to us. Social media, email, on our blog. Hey, you can even mail us stuff now. Yeah. Check for that physical mailing address on our blog page. Thanks again and welcome to our new patrons and all of our previous past patrons. As always. Hey, it's also October. Spookies coming out all throughout the month. So if you want to hear us evolve plant monsters (laughs) with our friend Allie, check that out. Please check it out. It was so much fun. We release episodes fortnightly, so check back in in two weeks for the next episode. And until then, keep your mouth shut while you sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Look out. Here comes the spider, man. (laughs) This makes me think of that one comic where he bluffs a bank robber by saying he's summoning the spiders. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I'm (laughs) Spider-Man. Oh, uh, you! I I can't believe we made as many as few Spider-Man references as we did. Yeah, I I was holding back. We'll do another episode. <laughs> Spider-Man. Someone request Spider. <laughs> Someone request a Spider-Man. Oh, we'll do it. Oh. Bye. <laughs> do animals talk in this universe? Cause I don't want to freak them out. <laughs>